Barbara Irwine is an architectural consultant, educator, and writer focusing on sensory design and sustainable architecture that celebrates the integration of the built environment with the natural world. Drawing on her background in science and architecture, her work ranging from commercial buildings to sustainable urban master plans integrates passive design strategies with sensory aspects of architectural placemaking. She has worked as a senior consultant at Palladino & Company, managed the Daylighting Lab at Seattle Lighting Design Lab, conducted research in daylighting at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and taught classes in lighting, sustainability, and sensory design at the University of Washington. Her book, Creating Sensory Spaces, The Architecture of the Invisible, explores the potential of sensory design to reclaim the role of the senses in creating memorable experiences of place and belonging. An early advocate of sustainable approaches to urban dwelling, she was on the development team for one of the first U.S. co-housing communities where she now resides. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here talking with you. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, we're doing this podcast for Nia and learning from the greats. And when I was asking for suggestions, your name came up multiple times. So I'm really excited to hear about your stories and your experiences and share that with everyone. So thanks again. Thank you. That's uh, an honor. I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate the work that Nia does. When I was working at the Lighting Design Lab, I interact with the Nia folks a lot and really appreciate that work that's being done. Well, great. Thanks again. So we have a fun list of questions here of um, ideas and thoughts that we had when we were prepping for this. And then um, I had a lot of thoughts when I was reading your book as well. So we'll go through some of those. But one of the first things I'd like to tackle is I know you have an interesting background, which I'm drawn to because I have a similar kind of story. Um, but I was just wondering if you could share with everyone how you started in your career and kind of where, where you ended up. Yeah, well, I started um, when I was in college, I was actually in chemistry. Sometimes it, it's surprising to people because the switch from chemistry to architecture is quite a dramatic one. But I was a chemist, an analytical chemist for about 13 years before I realized that I wanted something more uh, attuned to my values in the world and what I really cared about. And uh, I was very much interested in passive solar design and energy efficiency. And so I applied for graduate school at UC Berkeley and was accepted and did my uh, master's in architecture there. And during that time there, I became very interested, more interested in passive solar design and specifically in daylighting, which became sort of the basis of my early career in architecture was daylighting consulting. And I worked at the Lighting Design Lab in Seattle as the daylighting specialist for about a decade, and then branched out into all of sustainability when I started working at Palladino and Company and took on issues of water conservation and um, landscaping and sort of the whole broad range of, of issues around sustainability. 
So I have that balance of the art of architecture and the rigor of the science that, that I started out my education in, which is kind of unusual in the field and allowed me to bridge between the, the architectural design and the engineering concepts to carry them out. And so that's been, that's been sort of the hallmark of my work all along and eventually led to my consulting in sustainability and design and then into sensory design. Amazing. And I, I think that balance too, having that hard science and kind of the, the more artistic piece too, having that blend is pretty crucial as we move towards more sustainable buildings and um, thinking through how to create creatively address some of the issues um, that we're going through. So I think yes, that's and great. It, it was really beneficial in me in my consulting to then be able to talk to both to both the architects and the engineers on a on an issue that we were then trying to work together as an integrated design team. Perfect. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that integrated design process? Yeah, it's um, it's been really crucial in my work, I think, um, especially starting out in daylighting, because I started to see that as an architect, I just really, um, really appreciated what daylight did to a space and the beauty that it could create. Um, as a sustainability consultant, I really appreciated the saving of natural resources and the conservation that could happen through using a, a technique like daylighting. From my sort of scientific engineering background, I really, I really appreciated the complexity of the, the math and the balance of energy flows that was needed to actually do that well. And as a person, sort of just a person in the world, I, I appreciated the sense of place that a, a technique like daylighting can create. And so that moving between all of those different perspectives really helped me um, sort of pull a team of people together, whether they, you know, the users, the building owners, the architects, the engineers on the team, and just kind of work among all of them to creatively work together to come out with something beautiful that actually functions well. So that was, that's been my approach all along. And just, I've been always very much interested in an integrated team working together for toward one goal. Great. I, th I think that's important too. Like you said earlier, if you could talk to both parties, you know, being that translator is so so important and also the balance of the technical and what we experience. I remember in your book, there was a section where you were talking about how a lot of the focus in terms of architecture has been on the exterior and right. you felt like this interior kind of piece was missing. And I've always felt like that, that why aren't we designing for people? You know, we don't want to design for people walking by. We want the buildings to actually fit for the people, maybe both, right. but right. Um, any, any bonus thoughts on that? You know, I, I think that it, it's interesting when I wrote the book, I found just some delightful, two delightful, what are called napkin sketches uh, done by six-year-old children, uh, a boy and a girl. And one of the sketches, uh, they're obviously one of their parents is an architect. And one of the sketches is that exterior perspective or exterior image of a building, just the, the classical architectural drawing of Frank Lloyd Wright House. And the, the other six-year-old drew 
an interior vision of that house, uh, basically a section, an, an interior section of the house. And the complexity and interest of the interior view was just, it had a person in it, it had an animal in it, it had all of this activity going on inside. And I was struck by how that's really where we all live is in the interior of those spaces. And that is that affects us as much as the view from the outside. And so really delving into what that interior feels like and how we inhabit those spaces is what architecture is about. I love that explanation. I'll need to share that with all my students. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely trying to get them to focus more on all of those experiences. So we'll dive into the book a little bit more here in a second. I got a little ahead of myself. I was excited about that piece. In terms of your career, one of the things that I wanted to dive into a little bit more is you mentioned you have a lot of experience in sustainability and daylighting, both of which really relate to energy efficiency and and Nia's overall goal. And so I just was wondering if you had any lessons learned along the way or stories from projects that you worked on where you learned something important that might help other designers or integrated teams design better. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that we always learn, uh, we learn best from our mistakes. We, we take a lot of kudos for the things that we do well, but we, um, I think we learn most from the mistakes that we make. And I, it comes to, what comes to mind is a project that I worked on for, actually, it was a public utility district that was designing a, an office area and they were building light shelves in the area. And light shelves were a very popular way at the time of bouncing daylight into a space with and avoiding the direct sun. And as a consultant on the project, I told them the depth of the light shelf that was necessary in order to alleviate the direct sun, but um, get as much daylight into the space and work well with the design that they were doing. And they took that information and they loved the form of the light shelf and but they did not like the length that I told them was necessary and so they made the decision to make it about half as long as I said it was needed and it looked very nice and when they first opened in the middle of the summer it worked really really well and about September mid-September they started having direct sun come into the space And then that happened all through the winter that direct sun was coming into the space and landing on the desks that of people working there. And, and what I saw was that people, people get their own solutions. And so what they did, they had just recently moved into the space and they, they had a lot of packing boxes around. And so they started putting the packing boxes on top of the light shelf to block the direct sun that was coming in. And I, we all very, very quickly saw that, oh, people will take care of a situation that's, a, that's not comfortable, that's not working for them. And so that the necessity of paying strict attention to both the, the aesthetics that you want and then the science that tells you how to make that work well is critical. And what happened was that the, they had to go back in and retrofit mini blinds on top of the light shelves to actually make them function in the space. And that reduced the amount of daylight coming into the space. So they ended up with a compromised system because they didn't really want to believe the science behind it. And that just became a real um, touch point for me about taking the science. Uh, and well, for me, I actually, 
had taken it very seriously, but really pushing on clients that if you're going to do it, you have to pay attention to the science and you have to pay attention to what you want to create and what the science says will work um, in the final design. So just little, little things like that of just, oops, we <laughs> learned that lesson. Yeah, that's a great example. I've, uh, I've experienced that with students too. And uh, we have a, my favorite section to teach is the daylighting section. And um, when I talk about light shelves or exterior shading and really the depth that you actually need, I see their faces go, what? Yeah, <laughs> no, that would look horrible. I don't want that. And um, they usually don't do it. And then their models usually don't work. Right. And so uh, a real life example of that, for, you know, instead of having a model is a bigger, a bigger consequence. And I've seen a lot of occupants do interesting things like with duct taping over things, um, popsicles on thermostats, you know, right. all, all kinds of <laughs> occupants are sneaky and smart. So it's, you need to make sure that the building actually works right. for what they need. Definitely. Any other thoughts from the career piece or specific projects that stood out to you that you'd like to highlight? I guess one thing that comes up for me, another piece, which is sort of the opposite end of things. When I, um, when I first started daylighting consulting and work, the adage was that you never let direct sun into a space um, because it's um, very high energy with, it brings in a lot of heat, obviously. And uh, if you don't bounce it around well, it's not actually useful daylighting. And so the, there was a very strict adage, never let direct sun into, into a workspace or, or into any um, uh, commercial building. But then through, throughout my career, what I started to understand, especially here in the Northwest, is that people actually like direct sun sometimes and that to take a bit of that and splash it around the space is actually quite delightful and really raises spirit, people's spirits especially in the winter and so i started to understand that balance between those very strict rules of what's important from a very tight energy sense and then how to accomplish something that can be artistic and beautiful and kind of raise people's spirit at the same time. So that kind of combination of energy efficiency and sort of joy and delight and spirituality. And one of the things that I talked about a lot when working with clients was what I came to call the daylight chandelier. That was a, a sort of artistic piece in the space that could take a small amount of direct sun and splash it around the space. I, what the person's name that comes to mind is the James Carpenter's work and what he has done in creating using dichroic glass to splash uh, bits of sunlight around a space and just produce a, a liveliness in the space. So, so kind of that balance of the, the art and the, the strict science um, has become very important to me. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I've heard the same thing with never, ever, ever let direct sunlight into uh -huh. the space. And a lot of that comes from an energy perspective and the codes or standards. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just listening to something the other day and they reiterated that these codes and standards are the the minimum, but you can kind of push the limits and still meet your energy efficiency goals and play a little bit, you know, be more artistic. And so I think that's a perfect example of that. Definitely. Awesome. Good story so far. Good <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
Okay, so let's dive into your book a little bit. We keep mentioning the book and haven't officially said that yet. So Creating Sensory Spaces, uh, The Architecture of the Invisible, fantastic book. And I was really excited about kind of the artfulness of it and the descriptions. And I mentioned to you in my email, I was really homesick for Seattle after reading it because it was it just reminded me of the smells and the sounds of the city and, and living there for a while. So you, you succeeded at that. <laughs> oh, good. Because that was, that was actually my intention was um, I have a, I have a background also in a narrative nonfiction writing and narrative is really important to me to create a sense of place. And I was really working in the book to try to immerse the reader in the place to the, to really um, feel the sensory aspects of it. So I'm glad it worked for you. It did. And maybe when I go back to Alki Beach and Pike's Place and Uh (laughs) all of those places. So I guess before we get into some of the topics, um, explaining what you mean by sensory design and uh, the senses that you focused on in the book might be a good place to start. Yeah. So Basically, my work in sensory design kind of grew out of my work in daylighting um, and my my sustainability consulting. What I started to understand was that um, a lot of the issues that we were facing in the designs was that that I was working on or or helping others, helping a team work on, was that no, no one person was taking full responsibility for designing the thermal environment the light environment. The light environment, sometimes we would have someone specifically focusing on that as a, as a lighting designer, but the thermal environment, the acoustic environment, the, um, the textural environment, that they were not being specifically designed. And most of them were kind of being handed off from the architect to the engineer. And the engineer would be designing from um, the standards that exist for comfort, which are essential. They're really, it's, I, I don't want to downplay standards that are, that are developed for people's comfort, but, um, but none of that creates a delightful environment that creates just an okay, reasonable environment, but nothing that brings people's spirits high. And I realized that just as we do that for daylighting, we can also do that for the thermal environment and for the acoustic environment, for the air quality environment. And so I started looking at designing for those environments. And that's what that's kind of what the book grew out of. And I, I started with my approach for daylighting and then applied that to the thermal area. And I, and I also have to acknowledge Lisa Heshong because her work uh, in the book Thermal Delight in Architecture was the other touch point for me in developing each of the chapters. And the first thing I did was to uh, look into sensory perception in general. And for a while, for several months, actually got kind of mired in the, the question of how many senses do we, ha- do we have? Um, and I can't say I have an answer to that. And I can't say that anybody has an answer to that. And the, the under, But the understanding that I came out with was that um, our division of our senses into five or nine or 42, however many you want to say that the humans have, um, is really arbitrary and is a, is a function of the language that we use. In order to speak about something, we have to separate it out from other things. And so we, we say sight, or we say smell, or we say touch. And we, we 
act as though that is they are separate entities when in fact they aren't in our body. There's, a, there's this cross-modal interaction of all of our senses. And we, we create divisions to talk about them. And I try to be clear about that in the book that I am dividing the chapters into um, a, a series of, of five or six uh, senses to, to address each of them individually. But then I try at the end of the book, or I do at the end of the book, bring them back together into whole designs where you can start to understand the interaction among the senses. So I, I hope I've done a reasonable job at that at the book. And I really have come strongly to appreciate how the senses interact and how they don't start and stop at any one place, but that it is this broad interaction with the world that our senses provide. Yeah, I think you did succeed in that for oh, sure. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and I I really found it interesting. I had watched a show a couple of weeks ago. It was talking about people who were maybe missing one sense. And uh-huh. so a, another sense would step in, in in lieu of that. So one of the examples was there was a person who couldn't hear physically, but they could see light. And in their brain, when they saw different colors of lights, they it would actually make sounds in their brain. Uh-huh. So they, they could hear light. And I had just seen that and I was already fascinated by that. And they were talking about different senses and then how there's the primary, you know, five or six that we think about, but then different senses like pain, where some people might categorize that under touch, but it might be a physical pain that's internal um, or right. hunger or things like that. And so having already had that seed planted and then reading your book about all of those interactions and how they interact together, it really got me thinking about, you know, not only how can we design for sensory spaces, but how do you understand those interactions and can those interactions change throughout the day by using those natural resources like daylight? So I don't know. I just, I was really fascinated and excited to read that piece. So playing off that thought, do you have a few examples in terms of how you would tell designers that they could implement different design aspects into architecture or interiors or both to kind of facilitate and have the occupant experience some of these? Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I mean, part of the reason it's a big question is because sensory design is very complex. And so the first part of it, as with any design, is to know your client and your users. And for today, architects and designers, our interior designers, our urban designers, I think, first of all, what we have to do is reacquaint ourselves with the sensory world. Because I think that as designers, it's something that we've lost touch with that we are very in tune with the sensory world, but we're not consciously in tune with it. And I think that's one of the important things as a designer that we always need to become consciously in tune with the things that we're designing toward. And we have lost some of that ability because of our because our environments tend to be so uniform these days. And so we have been working off the you know adages of providing 50 foot candles or 30 foot candles of light or so many decibels of sound or and we've kind of worked down to that uh, comfort level 
And now we have to kind of reacquaint ourselves with the idea that, oh, you know, having one place in a room that's warmer than another place can, can provide a cozy little alcove or changing the light levels throughout a day or, or experiencing the change of light levels throughout a day because of, of daylight changes in the daylight is actually beneficial to our health and our cognitive abilities. So I think the first thing is for designers to reacquaint themselves with those facts. And uh, when I have worked with students at the University of Washington, one of the first things we do is just to go out and experience sounds in an environment or experience smells or find a particular place that has a, has a very appealing thermal qualities and just be in that space and, and appreciate it so that the, you can then design from that experience. So, so that, that's kind of the first thing. And then the next thing is to sort of understand our sensory reactions are very cultural. They're personal. Um, they have to do with our sensory abilities, whether we lean towards vision or sound or if we're, if we're very sensitive to heat, if we have allergies. So uh, there's a lot of understanding that has to go on um, in, those, in those regards. Um, so the next thing is to, to talk with the, the ultimate users of the space and find out what they want, what, what's important to them, what strikes them emotionally, what brings up their you know, heart space or memories that they have. And then start to understand that we do have the ability to, and this is where the integrated design becomes really important, that we do have the ability to create some spaces that are warmer and some that are cooler or some that are brighter and some that are darker. And that we can modulate these through time and that we can choose, we can choose to do that. We can create an intersection that has a brightness of light because it has a skylight right above it. Or we can create a, a dark, warm corner alcove that people feel private and can gather in. So actually the whole point of my book was to to get people to think about those types of spaces and where we might want them to be and why. And then to be able to design from that. Uh, it's like having more in your toolbox to design mm -hmm. from. Yep. I love that. All of that <laughs> from start to end. I, it brought up a lot of thoughts along the way. And one sense that I gathered is that I, I agree that we subconsciously experience these things and they're not conscious anymore. And it's almost like a user lose it sort of thing, like a muscle that's, if you work that muscle and focus on that, then you can become stronger in that area. And I, I, I sort of see that with senses sometimes that you might lose your ability to adapt or to really tune into those senses. If you're just always in these kind of mundane, stable environments, and that's not how we as humans evolved, you know, we were out in nature and living in the world and sound was important. Sight was important. All of these senses were important, not only to live and experience life, but to survive. And right. so I, I kind of wonder since we've lost a lot of that, what that means long-term, but that's a bigger picture question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bigger question. So I'll actually, narrow. Actually, ahead. There are some people working on research now that are implying that our current trend toward obesity in our culture has to do with the bland environments that we're, we're now within and people looking for some sort of excitement. Through taste. <laughs> yeah, through taste. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that we're, we're kind of transferring that internal need for variety in our environment just towards one sense of taste. 
Yeah. That makes sense too. When you think about, you know, all the, our different hormones and what we experience in our body and what elicits dopamine and serotonin and all of these other chemicals and hormones, eating is one thing that does that, but getting chased by a tiger does too. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, I think there's a whole coffee or wine chat to go with that question. <laughs> okay. So let me get back to the design piece. One of the pieces that I was interested in when reading your work in starting to think about through design and resilient design, there's been a lot of discussion about should we expand the notion of thermal comfort and what that means in buildings? Should some of these codes and standards change so that we can achieve net zero buildings or more efficient buildings? And there's one camp of people that I think want to expand, let's say thermal comfort, expand that range so that people can start to feel that range again. And there's another camp that says people should just have to deal with hot or cold so that we can have better, more efficient buildings. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of how we can use this idea of sensory design to not only support people, but also support this idea of energy efficiency and and any thoughts that come to mind. I guess the two thoughts that come to mind, I mean, the first one is that there is a lot of research going on now about people's expectations if we talk, say, about thermal comfort. So people's expectations about comfort based on where they're coming from, either the culture or coming inside from the outdoors. I would say the pivotal work, the exceptional work of, I'm just going to attribute it to Gail Brager, but I know she worked with a a large number of people at the Center for the Built Environment at, at UC Berkeley on being able to open windows and opening up the thermal comfort areas based on on whether there's natural ventilation or not and personal control. And so I think that's um, certainly personal control is one of the avenues of giving people more flexibility and flexibility closer to their own body of choosing their comfort level. And in those circumstances, many people will choose a wider range of thermal comfort areas. So so that in, in itself can be an energy saving measure. And I think the, the other piece is that I do think that we have, as a culture, narrowed our range of, of what we expect and uh, what we think we're comfortable in, and that there is some opportunity for, for us. And I think part of a lot of that, again, will be through personal exploration of letting people kind of choose a range of, of comfort. And that as we allow things to get maybe cooler and hotter in our environment or brighter or dimmer, we will understand that, oh, I'm, I'm personally not restricted to a narrow range of five degrees or 10 foot candles or whatever that understood comfort level range is. And that I actually want to experience it when it's chilly outside or hot outside or not. Um, You know, people will have differences. And I think within that, there will be an energy savings because being able to control smaller areas, not just do an entire building at 68 degrees or 50 foot candles or whatever the the metric is, but bring it closer to the person, make it more personally controllable or give people choices working in a particular environment and then go sitting, taking a break in a different environment that's slightly warmer or cooler or brighter or has a lovely smell or something like that. 
Yeah, I think those are great suggestions. I think there's a lot of innovation that can happen through applying those concepts. So one example I've seen, there was a building for GSA and it was almost like a hoteling office. Mm -hmm. And so there were spaces that were warmer or cooler or brighter or dimmer. And then they could select based on their preferences for Mm -hmm. that condition uh, where they wanted to work that day. And so then they would go online and check that out and, and then they'd have their new workspace. And so I, I think there's creative ways to deal with that. And like you said, um, I do think the personal control aspect is really important for people to be able to accept that wider range. I've also heard a lot from specifically engineers about automating people out of the building and uh, gaining energy efficiency or net zero through just having people not touch the building at all. What are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting engineering approach. And I I understand that because I I do, as a scientist, understand that um, to get the greatest efficiency in a particular system, the fewer people touching it, sometimes the better. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, the human in me um, loves um, uh, loves to be part of the environment that I'm in. And so I personally lean towards giving people um, uh, some control, some interaction, some ability to uh, open a window. Um, and I, I really feel like um, for me, that overweighs the bit of efficiency that would come from a totally automated hands-off building by the, the occupants. So I, um, I appreciate both sides of it, but lean towards the, the personal control side. And also just it's not just for me personal control, it's that biophilic part of being able to say open a window or um, uh, pull back a blind is just really, I think an important part of, of mitigating between inside and outside. We spend 95% of our time in buildings. And I remember when I was first teaching, it was down around 80%. And now the numbers are saying 95%. And that's, that's critical that it's a very, very much a change. And the other thing I was going to say related to what you were talking about before was this ability to choose to have personal control in a work environment. It's becoming much more important since the pandemic. People have been working from home and have that ability within their homes. And as they move back into the workspace, if they move back into a separate workspace, they are going to want that more and more. So I think this year of pandemic has been a a year of change in what people will expect in their work environments. I think that's a really good point. And yeah, I know quite a lot of people who don't want to go back to the office at all. And I don't know, I know it was really rough on some people, but for others, um, you can have a different kind of experience and a different schedule and a different thermal conditions or pajama pants, you know, there's all kinds of comforts that we're not used to having that it's gonna be hard to go back to the norm. So yeah, that's a really good thought. Maybe it'll be that impetus to kind of get designers to think about things differently for sure. Yeah. So we have a couple of other topics to get to, um, but before we switch gears, I just was wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to mention from the book or I don't know, in, important aspects you'd like to highlight from that? You know, I, I think 
I really, uh, you know, part of me wants to say, um, read the book, um, because, but it's not just because it's my book, it's because I really feel it's a piece of design that has so much potential for bridging a number of gaps that exist in our in our educational system and in the way that we think about designing and being in places. And it doesn't relate just to inside a building. It, it goes into landscapes. It goes into urban design. It acknowledges the cultural differences that, around what we experience and what we expect in our sensory world. And the other piece is that um, the book is not all my original work. My original work in the book is to bring together the work of many, many other people. And these are really wonderful people who have explored each individual area of sensory design. And when I started the book, I thought there were two ways of writing a book like this. One was to uh, edit a book where each uh, expert wrote a different chapter. And there's a benefit of that is that you're having each expert sort of talk to the, their area of expertise. And my concern was that I really wanted to bring out a uniform point of view for each of the senses so we could move from one sense to the next and have this growing body of information coming from the same viewpoint. And so I chose to write the book uh, myself and write all the chapters. And for each chapter where I, I didn't have that expertise, I leaned heavily on the work of the experts and then put them into my own viewpoint so that they would all work together. So it's just an easy way to take all of these aspects of the sensory world and get attuned to each of them. And then to sort of put them together in, I think I chose three case studies at the end of the book that bring all of the senses together and work with three projects that just bring out multiple senses that interact together. So I, I just want to encourage however people step into that world of the sensory world to first step into the breadth of it. And then as your heart desires, maybe go into one area of acoustics or daylighting or um, sort of choose your path then outward to, to delve deeply into that area. Well, I think you did all of that beautifully. And I appreciate that you tackled each section and then brought everyone else together because it does have that one voice. Oh, good. Um, so yeah, it, it was fantastic and Great. a really fun read. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah, I, thank I was you. trying. I tried to make it a fun read. Um, yes, definitely uh, fun. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So I think a perfect segue from the book is you've mentioned that you do some work with narrative and architectural design. I'm curious to learn more about that. So I've just written, actually, written a paper for a EAEA 15 conference in a European conference in the fall about use of narrative in sensory design. And actually the whole conference is on use of narrative in design. So it's an, it was an interesting topic to me and it, it brought together sort of two areas that I enjoy in my life, narrative nonfiction and design. And what I've realized, there are two ways of, well, there are multiple ways of bringing people into the sensory world, but narrative has been one that's been used 
very often. I'm also very much interested in travel writing. And so the ability of a travel writer to create a scene and immerse you in a culture and an environment with narrative description and that relies very heavily on all the senses is really interesting to me and fun. And I've realized that it's a really good way for people to tell their stories, and then from those stories, look at the sensory cues of what they like. And sometimes I'll have students create a space in their mind and then describe it and through all of the senses. I worked with one design group in uh, Seattle here, the Portico group, and they used to have people make a bumper sticker that's like just six words about what you want this project to be and try to capture within that the essence of something. And so this working with narrative and and maybe probably an easier word for people to hear is story. We're working with people's stories about places that they've loved or a place that they're, they want to design that they will love and what that's going to be like. Uh, I think stories allow us to bring in our memories and our emotions and, and couple those with the things that we feel around us. So that's just a lot of what I've, I've done in the work and, and it's worked in both teaching and consulting. Yeah, I think that's a really great perspective. And it's, in my opinion, another area where you've kind of bridged that science and art gap in a way, because I, I automatically think about, you know, very quantitative methods. So measuring foot candles or measuring airflow or whatever that might be. But then really where I've found a lot of the most juicy stuff in research is through qualitative research, where you talk to the occupants and you find out what's working and what's not working and how can you make it better in terms of energy efficiency. I think that's where a lot of research, in my opinion, is kind of missing out because they're missing that human perspective. And they might realize that, you know, people are duct taping over the window for privacy, for instance, instead of for glare. And so right. maybe maybe a solution is to add some blinds. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so there might be really simple solutions that would help with the human experience and energy efficiency. So again, that that balance, it seems like everything we've talked about so far kind of comes back to the balance between science and creativity and the human experience. And I don't know, I think it's really fascinating that you've been able to do that kind of throughout all of your work. Yeah, the the balance, I think all of design is a balance. And I sometimes use the example of the handrail. You know, the handrail is, it's a safety measure and it's a constraint. Uh, There are are rules about handrails and how high they have to be and et cetera. Um, But it's also can develop into a beautiful element in a building. And that's, I look at all of, Uh, sensory design in that way, is that there are numbers that we have to meet or numbers that are important to pay attention to of decibels and foot candles and degrees centigrade or Fahrenheit. But but then there's beauty that, that can come out of that also. Yeah. So turning those challenges and barriers into opportunities. Right. Instead. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Okay, so I had a couple other thoughts. There's so much good stuff to talk to you about. You mentioned before when we talked co-op living. Right. Um, I think that concept might be new to a lot of people. And I know you've you've done a lot in that area as well. So do you want to explain, I guess, what, what co-op living is and how you've been involved in that? 
I mean, co-op living covers a lot of territory, but the form <laughs> of that, the form of that that I've been involved in is is called co-housing, which mm-hmm. many of the architects who might be listening uh, have probably heard of because it's become not common but um, well known as an interesting alternative for living in a neighborhood in the United States, and I came across co-housing actually when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. The term co-housing was just being formulated in the United States. It's a Danish form of housing in which it's basically condominium living with a strong element of community and sharing involved. And so I learned about it when I was at graduate school at Berkeley. And I, as a matter of fact, one of my early design studios, we were designing a co-housing community. And then when I moved up to Seattle, my husband and I got involved in a group of people who were interested in exploring that. And we eventually developed a community about 27 years ago. And I've been living here ever since. And we have individual units that are fully capable of living separately, but then we share a common space of patios and green spaces and a large common building where we have meals together several times a week if there's not a pandemic uh, involved. (laughs) It's hard to describe the amount of sharing that goes on. And many people hearken it back to the neighborhood of the 40s or 50s, where if you need a cup of sugar, it's nowadays you send out an email and figure out um, who's got a cup of sugar or who can take care of your kid for the next three hours because you just happen to have a Zoom call that you forgot about. Um, any number of things can come up. I gave a talk once about co-housing and tracked for a week the number of requests and offers that were, and it was like over a hundred requests and offers of just of things and services and can anybody print out this uh, color thing for me or whatever. And, you know, it's really based on community, but the other piece is there's a large sense of conservation in it because it's also a way of living lightly. Um, Our houses are smaller. We share a lot of things. We, We don't each have a lawnmower and we share resources. We don't go out as much. We don't have to. Um, We don't have to run out to the store to buy something because it's very clear that your neighbor will have the cilantro that you need for this dish that you're making tonight. It has these side benefits. Uh, I would say the, the major benefit is the community and sharing that goes on. But then there's these side benefits of resilience and sustainability and conservation and also uh, contribution to the neighborhood. So we have a large community building that is available for, for use for the meetings that happen in the neighborhood. I think that's so amazing. And to me, as you were describing everything, it goes back to your work of this balance right. <laughs> between energy efficiency, but then also I can see narrative in that as well. Because to me, the, the community piece is togetherness and sharing of stories and all of that. I just, I kind of see that stream throughout everything we've talked about so far. So that's, that's incredible. It is, it is interesting as we get to a point in our life to be able to look back and see the consistency of themes throughout a lifetime. And it is reassuring to see the compatibility of, of changes, even changes for me from a chemist to an architect. Uh, I can't call myself an architect because I'm not licensed, but a, a, an architectural consultant. But that, and then that the moving that into a, a community living and yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah. Well, it seems like you're doing it all right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> having fun. Sometimes. <laughs> I am having fun. <laughs> well, good. Well, any stories that come to mind? Uh, we've talked about a lot of different topics today, but is there anything that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Mantras, stories, lessons learned. Uh, <laughs> how much we've covered. Let me yeah. think. Um, I think for me, my my path has been to always move closer to my heart and to, to the things that, that really matter to me. And I see that in my career and, and to bring along the things that, uh, like I could look back and say that chemistry for me was a mistake. It was a hard science that didn't fully embody the contribution I wanted to make in the world. And yet, if I look at how I carried that through, into the work that I've done in architectural consulting, I realized that that basis and a rigor of looking at a problem and a comfort with numbers and solutions has helped me to bridge the gap between architecture and engineering that, that I've finally come to. And that I think I actually honor the, the three-year program at the University of Berkeley. And I know a lot of universities have a three-year program for architecture, master's in architecture program that bring in people from uh, diverse backgrounds and immerse them in architecture for at least for the first year. And then they move into the standard program for architecture. But I really appreciate the opportunity that that gave me to bring that strictly rigorous scientific background I had into this artistic field that was also drawing my interest. And so, yeah, I, I think I want to honor, honor that and then also honor the many people and organizations who I've felt a kinship with through the years and through that journey and through the work that I've done and the writing that I've done, especially in the book. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great perspective and way to look at it, especially when you're talking about, you know, chemistry could have been a mistake, but going back to that changing those challenges into opportunities. I think that's really crucial to just keep moving and, you know, learn, learn from those potential mistakes and, and keep going. And I just want to say, I'm so grateful through this process that I've been able to meet you. And I'm just really excited to talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> I know you're busy though, so we won't, <laughs> but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. And I'm very grateful. So thank well, you great. so and much. I want to I want to thank you for inviting me and uh, and acknowledge Nia for doing a program like this. I think that getting getting new ideas out there and um, having some interesting conversations is always a wonderful gift to the profession. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much. Great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these podcasts.